Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today has been involved in martial arts for over 50 years, trained in numerous styles, competed in events like the World Combat Championships, Battlecade, K1 Grand Prix, and more. He competed as a kickboxer, worked in security, and was even a pro football player in the USFL. He was in the movie Mortal Contact and is the author of the book Shoot Fighting, The Ultimate Fighting System, and is a man who coined the name Shoot Fighting. Please welcome to the show today, Mr. Bart Vale. How are you doing today, sir? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing well. I pr- appreciate your time. Appreciate you doing this for me. But So what we do with all my guests, we, we go back to the beginning. I want to know where that first interest, that first spark about martial arts came from. All right. I was a, a young kid. I watched um, my buddy's stepbrother kind of handle like three people like it was nothing. He was in charge of the a community college uh, basketball courtyard and nobody was allowed to go in their regular shoes and we were up there and uh, somebody came in with regular shoes so we were supposed to go down and tell them and my dad then it got an argument and he handled a situation with three people and just him and I said to him I said what did you do and he says oh um, I'm training in karate and I says I you know I want to do I want to do karate so he started he started to train me and his uh, stepbrother in the garage and then um, one day he said, you know, I can't, I can't train you guys anymore because I'm going to be a soccer coach. <laughs> I made fun about, you know, nobody plays soccer, that's, you know, <laughs> whatever, play football. But anyhow, he was persistent to being a soccer coach. And okay. he told me where to go. He said, uh, go to Tracy Karate. And I said, I said to him, I said, no, I don't want to train with no girl. He goes, no, <laughs> it's, it's not a girl. It's it's these three brothers that, you know, have a bunch of schools around. They're really good. And, and it's, he says, it's that school I took you a couple of times that we went to and so forth. So I went in, I went into the Tracy school and, and I, I started training in the early seventies. It was like 1970, 70, 1970, 71, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I started training uh, with Tracy karate. Uh, my instructor was uh, Tom Dunn. Okay. Uh, one of the top guys that Al Tracy sent over to California, wow. uh, from California. Okay. And um, I was fascinated with it. It was just, it was exactly, exactly what I was looking for. And um, I continued to train. I had the opportunity, when, when Joe was training, I he used to take us all over the places to, to look at stuff. And again, Joe was the guy that was the soccer coach, was going to be the soccer coach. He, I had the opportunity to see uh, Bruce Lee at the Homestead Air Force Base when he did his one-inch punch. And wow. there were a couple of other guys that came over to the Homestead Air Force Base to do demonstrations. And I was just really, really fascinated in training. It was all traditional martial arts. Mm-hmm. You know, all what we all thought was traditional martial arts you know you you learn your forms your techniques your katas your kicks 
so many times you have to do it before you progress and go on. And I was so fascinated with it. And then one one time, uh, well, at the very beginning, I uh, I was uh, testing for my orange belt and um, I failed. And uh, I said, oh, man, you know what? I'm going to quit this karate stuff. I'm good enough. Now, you got to remember now, I didn't make any rank at all. And everything in the neighborhood, everybody knew white belt, brown belt, and black belt. Nobody knew about colors. There was no such thing as colors uh-huh. when I was doing this. So I said, my, my buddy said to me, he goes, hey, you're supposed to be a karate tonight. I said, yeah, you know, I got really good. And, and so, you know, I quit, you know, and he said, oh, cool. He says, what belt did you make? And I knew I couldn't say white because he'd laugh at me. And he knew I didn't stay long enough to be brown. Or maybe he thought it, but I said, you know, I said orange belt. And he looked at me and he said, what a stupid color. <laughs> and I, I thought the same thing after he <laughs> said it. So the next day I went back to the karate school, tested, got my belt. And from then on, you know, started training on a regular basis. Had the opportunity to start teaching and managing schools. And I mean, I just had a, a great, great time doing a traditional Chinese temple, which is basically the original style that William Chow showed Ed Parker Sr. And Ed Parker Sr. showed the Tracy brothers, Al Tracy, Jim Tracy, and Will Tracy. Then later on, everybody kind of just watered it down or changed it or modified it based on what they could remember or what they thought was efficient. I mean, I had the opportunity to train with William Chow from 82 to like 88. Six maybe oh, wow. 85 86 because i started i started going to japan in 86 to compete in what is now known as the mma stuff uh, when we were doing it it was just considered like the strong style mm-hmm. which was the combination of kickboxing and grappling and when i saw that you know i kind of took a back seat to the chinese temple i had already achieved my fourth degree black belt in uh chinese temple okay so i wanted to kind of do a little bit more of the, the strong style. And um, I was even more fascinated by that because, again, I'm a big guy. I'm over six, I'm at 6'4", 250. And um, I had this, this little Japanese kid took me apart in the ring. Like, I, I, I couldn't even figure out what was going on. I mean, I yelled and everything like that, that, you, you know, cheating, you're not supposed to do this, you know, because I think you're just kickboxing. Mm-hmm. And he kind of mopped the floor with me. And I said to the Japanese, I said, I, I got to learn this stuff. I mean, this was fascinating to be able to combine grappling and uh, kickboxing together. So what- the, o- the only thing that I saw on it, because I do a lot of bodyguard work and mm-hmm. security work, you can't really go to the ground on the street only because you, know, you end up getting kicked in the head by somebody that's not even part of the fight. And the other thing, too, that was always real bad was the asphalt tore you up all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the asphalt rips your knees and elbows. Even if you're winning, you're going to get all scraped up in that. So I, I, did, I didn't like the ground stuff in a street situation. A couple of my buddies were big-time wrestlers in that, and they, they always said to me, well, you know, because I always say, what happens if you get in a street fight? They go, well, then I'll just become a bad boxer because they would not, they would not go down to the ground in the street. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were bright enough to know that. So again, you know, you gotta you gotta stay standing up. But in today's world, a lot of people just go to the ground. Right. So the the, the first thing you know, you watch these shows and everybody's trying to do repo. I think that repo show, they're always doing a rear naked choke where they take the guy down to the ground and and they do that. So as a martial artist, you know, for so many years in the Chinese tempo, 
not trying to train people to grapple because nobody's going to learn how to grapple in, in a few months. So what I started doing was taking the Chinese Kempo and adding a variation to one of our stand-up techniques if the opponent is able to take us to the ground. Okay. And if he does, our main objective is to be able to get back on our feet and then be able to do a self-defense technique, you know, whether it's hitting them in the throat or hitting them in the eyes or groin or whatever it is. Okay. I want to, Fascinating. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, I want, I want to back up a little to, to, to the, when you were still training in Chinese Kempo, when you were in doing the uh, Tracy Kempo, did you do competition through Kempo at all? Did you do tournaments and stuff? I did. I, I did. Um, I went to a few tournaments. I used to love to go to the internationals. Mm-hmm. We did some local tournaments. And then back back in the late 70s, early 80s, we put together a uh, team, the Miami Vice karate team. And in nice. fact, our team beat the Budweiser team. <laughs> cool. In, uh, in, in the, I think it was in the Bluegrass Nationals. Okay. And, you know, like the only problem I had with the point fighting was what they saw or what they thought they saw. Right. And that, that always bothered me. And, you know, after a while, we just started calling it a game of tag because, you you could be jumping away from the guy, stick your hand out there as you're jumping the opposite way from where he was, and you could get a point. And, you know, it just, it just, uh, it, it just wasn't real good for me, but it was definitely a stepping stone. I love to go out to the internationals. I was out there in the internationals where Mr. Parker promoted me to fourth degree black belt in Temple. And, um, we were up on the stage and, and he puts me up on the stage and he gets me in a horse stance and he's wearing shoes. <laughs> and I know in Kempo black belt and above, we get kicked in the stomach. Yep. And he's, he's wearing a pair of shoes. He's talking and I'm standing there in a horse stance. And what I'm thinking in my head is this is going to hurt because Ed Parker senior was a total badass. Mm-hmm. And when he hit you, you knew you got hit. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going, this isn't going to be good. But, you know, I'm all excited and pumped and in front of the everybody at the tournament getting, getting promoted to fourth black. And uh, he stepped back to kick me. He took his foot out of the shoe as he kicked me. Really? Put his foot back in the shoe without even looking. Wow. That's and cool. I was blown away that he could do that and he could take, and it wasn't like he looked down to see his foot or where the shoe was or anything. I mean, it's like he knew exactly where it was. And then the other thing I'm thinking, I'm going, he probably didn't even know. He probably didn't even think about the shoe. And, and that was just a freak thing because the, the came out, kicked me and went right back down. It was, his foot was in the shoe That's and he cool. moved around walking away and everything like that. That'd have been cool to see. <laughs> wow. It was, it was, it was incredible. My one, my one buddy was there to watch and he said he never saw anything in his life. I mean, he was, he was training in, in, um, Goju Mm -hmm. and, um, he always heard about the Kepo people being, uh, punched below black belt and kicked above black belt. And when he heard that I was getting promoted to fourth, he wanted to see that because he, he never, he never witnessed anything like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, he was just fascinated by, of course, everybody was fascinated by Mr. Barker's ability. Right. You know, to, to be able to put this stuff together that William Chow showed him. That's really cool. What, so, a, what a story. Cool. Yeah. You know, it was, it was amazing. Nice.
things. And you, you also mentioned that when you were doing that, you started teaching. So what, what drew you to teaching? What made you want to teach? Well, after, after I got back in and, and got my orange belt in that, Tom Dunn had recommended me to, to one day at the class there to teach. And um, I said, well, God, I'm not really sure, you know, how to do that. And so we had like a little instructor's room. Mm-hmm. And um, we went into the instructor's room. And uh, that instructor's room used to be for just private classes. But as time went on, we, we very rarely used that because, you know, we were always teaching all the private classes in the actual dojo itself. So that little room became the instructor's room where you would change your clothes or whatever. I got in there and, and then he says, you know, the hardest thing is, you know, and you know all this stuff, like the hardest thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to mirror the student because you got to do everything opposite that he does. Right. And what fascinated me about teaching is it opened up another door to my martial arts training because at, at one point I could see where the techniques and the movements and everything I did was two dimensional. But when I, when I started teaching it, it was more three dimensional to me than anything else then. And, you know, for a while there, I always had to kind of stand next to the students to make sure what side the left and right was. Mm-hmm. And as time went on, you know, looking at the student moving his right hand was basically his left hand. And it was just, it was just the opposite side to me, which, you know, that's what fascinated me, first of all, for my ability, for me to be able to, to focus on that, because that helped me as a martial artist understand the movement in more than two dimensions. And that's, that's what I was fascinated by. And then the, and then the biggest thing that, that I really liked was to be able to take somebody from like a AB level to like a CD level to where I can actually see their progression. And especially in something that I love being the martial arts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, it was just fascinating to see how this student is able to, to throw a movement or be able to, to demonstrate a movement on a, an opponent. And most of it stuff was done in the air, but to, to see him do something on an opponent and then be able to get him to be able to control it and set the timing and be able to set the range. It just fascinated me to be able to do that for the student. And that's when I, I realized that I really enjoyed teaching the martial arts. Okay. I really did. The only thing that happened is when I started teaching the shoot fighting, it kind of, it kind of opened up a whole different level right? because on the tempo, we could get away most of the time doing the stuff in the air and movement, but in the shoot fighting day one, you've got to have somebody there. And the problem that we have and everybody does it and they don't even realize it, is when somebody grabs you or, or reaches for you or pulls you, your natural reaction is pull away. And that's why, you know, because I train some of the police departments in that. Mm-hmm. And I try to explain to these guys that they're not resistant. Okay. Because when you grab their arm, the, the natural reaction for us to do is to pull away from it. That's a natural reaction. And we can't help that. You know, that's like a sneeze. You can't, you can't just do that. So I try to explain that when you, when you grab the guy's wrist and you move the arm towards you, their natural reaction is to pull it away. That's, that's natural. And so what I'm, I'm getting at is on the grappling, when you grab a hold of somebody and you go underneath their arm and that, their reaction is pull away. So when you start to work out with somebody in, in the grappling world, you're always working against them. Nobody in the grappling world works with you. 
So, you know, you get, you get a 10 times harder workout because it's all, it's all physical as soon as you do grappling. So there's no cotton in grappling where you can stand and do it in your air, in the air and everything like that. I mean, it's getting a hold of somebody and them changing your movement because they don't feel they want to do that. And that's, that's the thing that I noticed on the, on the shoot fighting was the fact that we, we got a great workout in the shoot fighting okay. when you actually have to spar with somebody. Nice. So now you, you, you got into the full contact fighting at that time. Had you started calling it shoot fighting yet? Or did that come a little bit later? When did, when did that, the no, name what, come what happened? What happened is Sornaka uh, came to me and says, you know, we're going to try to bring some matches to the United States. We want to bring a team of Japanese to the United States and compete. Okay. Now, again, me being in Miami at the time, we are going to do it in Miami because I'm going to be the one in charge to make sure we get the place and all that. The only problem over in Japan, it was realistically for the fans called UWF style. Okay. So it was realistically wrestling. Mm-hmm. So I said to Soranaka, I said, you know, we can't come over here and say wrestling because people are going to think like American style wrestling, you know, and, and we're nothing like that. I mean, we're in a different category than like the American wrestling. And so, I, we got to come up with a different name. So we were at the, the office and there was Sornaka, the owner of the company, which I, I don't know his name, uh, Shin or something like that or whatever. And then, of course, uh, Fujiwar and myself. And so we're just kind of coming up with some names to bring it to America. You know, you just can't say wrestling and, you know, nobody's going to show up. So um, Fujiwar wanted to call it kick suplex submission style. And I said, no, because, you know, and he loved that name. But I said, you can't say my friends aren't going to say, hey, let's go to the kick suplex submission fights tonight <laughs> because the name is goofy. Right. So I'm, I'm sitting I'm sitting in the office there. And, you know, I've been in Japan for a couple of months and I see no English at all. You know, you got to understand this. There's no English. So I've been in a couple of months and I'm in the office and I see I see a video case. And on the video case, it said, shoot, S-H-O-O-T. First thing in my mind was shooting a gun. So maybe it was going to be a video of people hunting ducks or whatever it was. And I wanted to see English. I wanted to hear English. I wanted all this English crap today. So I said, if I could take the video back to my apartment and watch, I wanted to see it, you know, shoot guns and that. And Fujiwara, I mean, Sarnaka says, it's not guns and that, it's, it's wrestling i go wrestling shoot is a gun he says no uh, a wrestler in the old days was called a shooter and i thought wow what a shoot and i said to sornak i said what about what about shoot boxing and he goes no we would don't wear gloves so i said shoot fighting <laughs> sornak and shin loved the name fujuar was still convinced kick suplex submission style was the name <laughs> but we didn't go with that so we went with the shoot fighting there and then uh Sornaka kind of talked me into uh, registering the name. Okay. And so we did. And then we bought it here to the state. I think you picked the right name for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was a great name. And then then the other thing that pissed off the Japanese was I did a commercial on, on a cable. And it was like a 30-second commercial. And, you know, the guy, the announcer, is, oh, this and that. And then at the end of it, it says, come watch the Americans beat the Japanese again. <laughs> Sornaka says, that's not very funny. <laughs> I said, hey, I didn't start the war. <laughs> you guys did. So how did that event go then so, that you had in the U.S.? 
the first one. The event went really good for the first for the first time. Anybody seen it? That we did it at the James L Knight Center, which is downtown Miami, and I think we had about thirty five hundred people. Wow! That showed up for it. Not bad. And um, it was it was really good. And then we tried to do a few matches after that. Uh, the biggest problem that I saw we were going to have is is being able to to rent a place and be able to um, to to be because I try to get sponsors and stuff like that right to, to sponsor because I know Budweiser used to love to sponsor stuff and I went into Budweiser and uh, I had a meeting with the the top Budweiser people which I could be wrong but I think I think I was in the Chicago area meeting with them and um, I came in with a proposal of. 400,000 and which which I thought was a whole lot of money and <laughs> it still is a whole lot of money. Yeah. And then afterwards I didn't hear anything from him. So one of my students knows somebody that worked there and he called and the guy said that particular Budweiser they don't do anything for under 4 million. <laughs> wow. And I'm thinking I'm thinking in my head if I would have if I would have came in there with 4 million they might have done it. <laughs> Yep. But they said they wanted to stick to boxing, and I said, there's no there's no audience in boxing. You, know, you look at Monday Night Boxing, there's nobody in there. He says, yeah, but it's, that's, we don't care about that. We just care about, you know, the advertisement and that mm-hmm. that's going to be on TV. You know, that's that's our main thing is TV. And see, over in Japan, it was opposite. They yep. didn't. They didn't have TV coverage. They They want the fans. They want the fans to come there and watch because stuff like that never went on TV. You just can't watch TV and turn on over in Japan and turn on, you know, wrestling or kickboxing or anything like that. I mean, the only thing I ever saw on TV in Japan was sumo. Other than that, oh, yeah, and, and uh, then baseball started. But for the most part, they, they wanted the fans. So every time I try to do something over here in the state, Soronaka was, oh, no, we got to get the fans. We got to get the fans. And I was I was more thinking about getting the sponsorship. I would want to get on TV to get the to get the advertise you know to advertise their like Budweiser. Right. I mean Budweiser when when they're up there on on Monday night boxing, you know every commercial has Budweiser. Go get a Bud. Do what? And it was all Budweiser. And um, we just didn't, you know, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get past that with Sornaka trying to get like a real sponsor. I did have Napa do a small sponsorship on our second one. Nice. You know, to where we put a commercial and you could go buy your tickets at Napa. And then at the end of the event, I put uh, on the back of the ticket, you know, go back into Napa, your local Napa store and get a, you know, free oil filter when you buy five quarts of oil or whatever it was, something on that. And they liked it. And uh, again, it was the same thing. I mean, everybody, everybody wanted boxing. It just, the, the world wasn't ready for this yet. Right. They, they just, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't that time yet. So what, now I've heard other people talk about shoot wrestling. What's the, is that just another name for it or is that completely different? Yeah, basically, basically the same thing. I, I okay. think, I think on the shoot wrestling, they have the same rules as we do. Uh, shoot boxing, the rules are a little bit different because they wear gloves. They're a lot of one takedown and they're like 15 seconds on the ground. But basically, I think it's the same, the same exact thing that we're doing, but just using, you know, because even Siam did shooto which is, is almost the exact same thing, yep. but they do. I think somewhere along there is, you know, the, the time, uh, maybe you don't have as much time on the ground or maybe you don't have as many times to escape to the rope. I mean, I don't really, I don't really know 
exactly, but I'm I'm almost real sure that shoot fighting and shoot wrestling are exactly the same, but just different, you know, different name. Because again, like I said, shoot fighting is a registered trademark. Right. And, you know, kind of like what Gracie Jiu-Jitsu did, and that's why Gracie's, I mean, Gracie's did exactly what they should have done by <laughs> registering their name. Yep. The only problem is, is everybody just flipped around and saw a call to BJJ. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> that's the way we do things here in America. We have very little honor. <laughs> so, so if someone came up to you and they knew nothing about martial arts at all, and you had to explain to them in, in a couple sentences, what what is shoot fighting? What's your answer for that? Well, the easiest way that I say that is a combination of Thai kickboxing and submission grappling. Nice. Well, it's just like MMA, almost just like MMA. Mm-hmm. The only difference between shoot fighting and MMA, which nobody knows what MMA is yet, you know, is they don't have the transition. Okay. On Monday night, they have a kickboxer or a boxer come in there and teach them stand up. And Tuesday, they got a wrestler come in there and teach wrestling. They don't know the transitions from stand up to ground or ground to stand up. Okay. So there's, there's like a whole section that they miss when they put that together. And, and again, you know, MMA wasn't really a style. UFC isn't a style. You know, some of these people are confused on what's going on. You know, mixed martial arts was basically called after NHB stopped. And basically they were telling me it was because of my fight with, with Mike Matonio, where I headbutted him. He got 55 stitches in his face. They were grabbing my feet on the ropes, on the on the cage. Uh, we we were sticking our fingers in the eyes. We were pulling hair. So after the fight, they came out and they started going over because we were going to do another another fight. And they came up with all these rules. Well, you can't you can't headbutt, okay? Because that was my favorite thing. <laughs> can't headbutt. Uh, can't pull hair. Can't stick the eyes. So somebody came out and says, well, how are you going to do NHB and have rules? NHB no, says no holds barred, which means nothing. Okay. In fact, I wore a steel cup because I thought you were allowed to knee and kick to the groin and everything like that. But at the fighters meeting, they said, no, you can't do that. Okay. But afterwards, they said, this this is what you can't do. And somebody says, well, how are you going to call it NHB, no holds barred? We got rules. Well, it's not no holds barred. It's mixed martial arts. And that's basically how the, the name got going. And that's why they were calling it MMA. Okay. So and then well, it, it went from there. When you first saw the UFC, what were your first initial thoughts? I, I thought it was awesome. I, you know, basically exactly, you know, they were like a couple of years behind what we were already doing in Japan. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I noticed was they were taking two different styles to compete against each other. Right. It's kind of like somebody that's great playing baseball, playing against somebody doing football <laughs> and then trying to modify the rules. Yep. What happened over in Japan and that's why Japan was ahead of us, is they developed a different type of fighter. They didn't go out there and say, okay, we're going to get a judo guy. Now, everybody knows judo and jujitsu, they can't stand up fight. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not, I mean, their first thing is down to the ground. And a kickboxer and a boxer can't grapple. So the the, the UFC just played a, had an arena where two different styles can compete and see which one's the better. And sometimes, like when I was going to fight in the WCC, I went there and the the floor was like a wrestling mat. And for a kicker, I mean, that's the same thing I heard about the UFC yep. um, mat. It was for a wrestler. I can't pivot on a wrestling mat without breaking my ankle. Yep. So right there, having the wrong floor, you eliminate the stand-up altogether. Even a boxer can't throw a good cross when he's standing on a sponge floor. 
You know, because as a boxer, you got to pivot off the back foot and you draw your back heel through your right shoulder. And that's what's going to knock the guy out or break a four by four. Yeah. Definitely. And so you got to, you got to have that pivot point. But when you pivot, which you can't on a, on a floor like that, but if you were able to lift up and turn, you're st- still taking your weight off there. So realistically, it, the UFC mat started to gear more towards the grappler. And when we did the WCC, I had them change the floor because I wasn't going to do my art on a floor that was like, you know, I might as well fight on a waterbed. That makes sense. It makes perfect sense. But that's what's happening is that, you know, they, they don't have, they don't tra- have the transitions from stand up to ground and ground to stand up. Right. They're missing, they're missing that piece. So were you more a fan of the old school UFC or the newer stuff? Um, I, I, I kind of like the newer stuff a little bit better now Okay. than, than the old stuff because, you know, it, it seems to be, it seems to be at one point it seemed that more stand-up fighters were involved in it. Mm-hmm. They were doing more stand-up. I mean, I don't know if the mat's still designed for a grappler, but I know at the very beginning it was it was more like what you would do in a judo mat. Yeah, you know, so it geared it towards the grappler. And again, I tell everybody it's it's a sport. I train the police department stuff like that. And we use a lot of the techniques that we do in shoot fighting, like the the heel hook and the ankle lock to take the suspect out of the police car when they're when they're kicking the doors. So there's a lot of stuff that we could use in the street. But the one thing I always say on a regular basis to these guys is avoid going to the street with them taking you down because then everything's lost. Right. I mean, now the police love to take the guy down to the ground so they can cuff him. I understand that. So, you know, I work a whole direction there to, for you to take him down rather than him taking you down. Nice. And this way you can control him and then cuff him and get him up and, you know, sometimes, you know, you're cuffing him for his own safety because he's a goofball. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice. That's what I say all the time. We're going to, we're going to cuff you for your safety. So what, uh, what led you to write, write your book? Well, I had, I had somebody, I had somebody come up to me about, um, wanting to know, cause I, I did a lot of training tapes on the shoot fighting, but they, uh, they wanted more like a hard topic kind of a thing. And again, at the time, I thought it was a great idea because, again, in my world as a martial artist, I have a lot of martial arts books. You know, Master Yami, What is Karate? This is Karate. Mm-hmm. You know, I had those books. And I remember still to today that I would take out the book and look at one of the pictures and go, oh, you know, that's kind of cool. I remember that. And, and so they approached me about writing a book. I think it was, I don't think it was Palatine Press. But I think it was somebody that knew somebody from Palatine Press. Okay. And they were saying how they, they're usually the people that write books that are unusual, different, something you won't find at Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. Very so cool. I said, you know what, let's, let's put together a book and go from it. And, and somebody uh, contacted me not too long ago about writing another one. And oh. again, you know, to, to me, it's, you know, now that the, the era is, is, you know, computers and, video and streaming you know a book kind of seems outdated i think it depends i I, I still love reading books so i think it kind of depends on the person (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i i just i just think there's a less of a group of people out there that would do a book definitely because somebody said to me why don't we put on kindle or kindle or whatever yep kindle or nook or yep right and i said well that that might be an idea too but you know the the world uh is changing Mm mm-hmm you know, everything is, everything is new technology and computers and all that stuff. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, 
And in fact, uh, I went not too long ago to look for a black belt magazine and I couldn't even go and find a black belt magazine in the store that I'd, I would normally get a magazine from. Only place I find and it I now is Bar- Barnes, and, Barnes and Noble, I think is the only place I can even find that magazine now. Yeah, see, that's that's the problem with it because there, there was a place down in Fort Lauderdale that I used to go to. And um, I said, hey, what happens to all the karate magazines? He says, oh, we have that karate magazines in there in years. Wow. I used fact, to, I, I think I was the only one buying them. I used to buy them at a gas. I had a gas station half a mile from my house. That's where I used to buy all my martial arts magazines. Right. And they quit, they quit selling those right. in like 95, I think. Yeah, see, that's the problem. The, the guy at, I want to say Al's huge stand or something like that, he says, I'm the only one that ever bought the karate magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, when I didn't go in there for the last couple of years, you know, because he only he only got like three or four magazines at a time. Yep. And he said, you know, he didn't really have a, an interest for it, which is you know, like any other business. Yeah. yeah. Supply so. and demand. People have to want it, unfortunately. Otherwise, they're not going to do it anymore. So. Yeah. Okay. So now, do you guys still do shoot fighting events and tournaments and stuff? Yeah, we, we, we do. We haven't done any since the COVID. Oh, I suppose. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is it's real hard to get people to come back into the school, to, especially, I mean, teaching the Chinese temple is, is still very easy because we always taught it one-on-one mm-hmm. and we never had a, we had group classes, but for the most part, our students learned their material because the, the Chinese temple is, is a difficult style and like some of our forms, and I'll give you an example, is Tiger and Crane, which is basically, you know, a 12-minute kata wow. and it's hard to teach that in a group class. Mm-hmm. And if somebody doesn't show up one day for the class and we're going on, it's hard to get it like that. And, and again, it's an advanced form, so you can't have a group class just for one person. But for the most part, they learn their material in the private class. And then the group classes are designed to, to work with a partner on some of our techniques, workout, conditioning, and so forth. And when the, the COVID happened, you know, we stopped all group classes. And most of the private classes would come to students, well, how can we, can we still come in and just take the class? I had to modify the the schedule. So there was only one or two people in the dojo at a time. Wow. And then, you know, I tried to do the Zoom and everything like that, but that was, for me, That's tough. very difficult. I couldn't, I couldn't do the Zoom stuff like that. I could be like a squirrel where I have no, uh, you know, I, I, I get lost. Real quick, I, I can't focus on what they're doing when I'm watching a person on a TV. That makes sense. I mean, it's tough. So, I mean, it, training training martial arts through Zoom is not easy. It, I mean, what I, what I did though with my students is I make them do one private class in the dojo, and then I tell them what I want them to work on, and they have to videotape it and email it to me. Okay. And then I say, listen, if you don't get the email in to where i can review what you did the next class you come in we're just going to review so Uh what i'm actually doing is forcing them to practice because everybody says when they leave class i say okay make sure you go home and practice then the next time for the class (laughs) did you practice oh yeah but they did yeah i can tell you know it's like you can't chew gum and walk (laughs) so i make them do that and then if they don't send it into me i go ah you didn't send your thing and i I was going to do it i said yeah i was going to do it too but you did so Let's review. That's and good. so then this way it's forcing them to do what I would call homework. And I said, you know, the more you do, the better you're going to get. That's, I mean, you know, that's what you got to understand. I mean, Bruce Lee said one thing that I never forgot. He says, don't fear a guy that can do a thousand kicks. 
fear a guy that can do one kick a thousand times. Yep. You know, and that's what makes a good martial artist is repetition. I mean, William Chow told me we only have 54 moves in our system that are different. 54. Mm-hmm. But we do those 54 movements 5,000 times. <laughs> so when you're doing that step and block, step and block, you could do it on 15 different techniques. It's still a step and block, step and block, step and block. So what you're doing is you're, you're getting the repetition that makes the muscle memory. So this way, you step and block, step and block, step and block. It's second nature. And that's that's what fascinates me by the Chinese Kepler is because we have a lot of movement. Right. There's no doubt about it. But it's just like, you know, being a chiropractor or being a, a neurosurgeon. I mean, the chiropractor has less training than a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And the neurosurgeon has hours and hours and hours of practicing. And that's what makes you good is that muscle memory. And of course, for a neurosurgeon, you don't want to do it with your eyes closed, but right. you'll be able to. And that's exactly what the martial arts is, is to be able to do it with your eyes closed. And that only comes by repetition. And a lot of times the student gets bored by step block, step block, step block. But if we take that step block, step block, step block, and each time we do it, modify it to add or take something away, they're still doing the base movement, but it seems like they're doing something different. It's like Mr. Parker used to say to us all the time. My father used to give us meat and potatoes, meat and potatoes, meat and potatoes. One day he gave us potato meat and everybody laughed. <laughs> and the point was, was exactly what he said. It's still meat and potato, meat and potato, meat and potato, but it was, it was structured in a different order, yep. which makes you better as a martial artist. I get mad at these people that are getting rid of all these movements because their students can't do it because all they're doing is making their system weaker. It's not making it better. I mean, people ask me, how long will it take an average person to get black belt in Chinese temple? I said, an average person can't get black belt in Chinese temple. I mean, you've got to be above average. Yep. And if you're not starting off above average, we're going to try to develop you to be above average. I mean, I don't think anybody comes into a martial arts studio being above average. I mean, I've had a lot of people come in that are, are great athletes, but there's always going to be something that they're going to do in the Chinese Kempo that's going to be difficult, no matter how good they are. You know, and and so you need that you need that repetition. That's what's going to make you. That's what's going to make you better. Right. And you see, I I used to make fun, or well, I've even made fun of the Karate Kid. You know, because again, the wax in his car and painting mm-hmm. his house. But all that he was doing was developing that student's movement. Yep. Whatever, <laughs> whatever, painting the house or waxing the car, that, that movement is repetition. And after a while, you just do that with your eyes closed. You just wax down, wax off, paint up, paint down. I mean, that's, that's all he was doing as he was getting his house painted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, which was a great idea. So <laughs> Free child labor. Next Come week, on. <laughs> I'm going to have my students paint the building. There you go. Nice, nice. So what advice would you give someone who has never done martial arts in their life and they want to get involved and they're just trying to get some ideas on what should they look for in a school? What should they look for in an instructor and maybe some things they should avoid? Okay, well, I think the most important thing in any martial arts style you're going to do is is see if it's it's what is compatible for you. Mm -hmm. Now, what we do, we give the students two weeks to try with us. Nice. One, it gives us a chance to see what he can and can't do. And it gives him a chance to see if it's what he wants. Now, I got some people come in and go, oh, I want to lose weight. 
Okay, so they're obviously they, they want a school that gives more cardio, mm -hmm. uh, then we're going to rip his eyes out and, and pull his groin out. <laughs> and, and some people want more self-defense because they got bullied or beat up or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they don't want to sit there and run 16 miles uh, under 40 minutes. So they want more self-defense hitting and so forth. But I think the most important thing is to find out if the school is compatible. Now, some schools will give you an actual free class to let you try it and see if you like it and, and what you have on that. And then, of course, always make sure that when you talk to instructor that what he's teaching you is, is going to be what you're looking for. Right. And I have a lot of people, and I've, I've been teaching – I started, got, I got my own school in 75 and I started teaching people and realizing that most of the people don't know what they want. They've seen it on TV and they want to do it. So they walk into the school and it'd give me a chance to work with them because I still do my two week program mm -hmm. to work with them to see what they can and can't do. And it gives them an idea of what's going to be expected of them afterwards. And the other thing I tell people, watching somebody else doing it may give you a general idea. You know, if you go in and you watch the group class and they're doing a lot of running and cardio, you know that that school is going to do more cardio than self-defense. Or they may have more self-defense and, and that's what you're looking for. But as, as a student just walking into a school, I don't think there's any bad school that uh, don't waste your time with that style or this style. Mm -hmm. I think the, the first and most important thing is, is to kind of get in there first to see and see what you want and, and then be able to talk to the instructor and, and try to get more of this or less than that. And the reason I, because I've been doing it for a long time and I can tailor a program a, around each individual person. Nice. I had a girl come train with me. Her instructor threw her out of the school because she kept doing her inward block wrong. Really? And he kept telling her, you're doing it wrong. So she came into my intro program the first day was her and her two sisters. The first day I realized that her arm was messed up. I said to her, I said, you know, your arm, stop fighting me. She goes, I'm not fighting you. I said, I'm turning your arm. Stop fighting me. She goes, I'm not fighting you. <laughs> I said, you know, there's something wrong with your arm. This girl was 22 years old. She went to the doctor. They did an x-ray on her arm. Her arm at birth was fused together. Oh, wow. She could never do that movement ever. And you know what? She never knew she couldn't do it. And then our first day, I knew her arm, something was wrong with it. And she was 22 years old. Wow. And so I said, okay, now what we have to do is we have to develop that. And it's like anything else. You know, how do you teach somebody a right punch if they got no right arm? You know, that's the same thing. I mean, we just had to, we had to develop her to do that. She did a great outward block. She couldn't do a real good inward block, but, you know, she had to work with what she had. And that's, that's the problem is because when you, when you're training with somebody one-to-one, -one, it's going to be you and the instructor. And when you do a group class, I tell people this all the time, I can only go as fast as the slowest person in a group class. Mm -hmm. So if you're the slow person, it's going to be good for you. You're going to get aggravated because you think you're holding up the class and you're going to quit. If you're the fast student, you're going to get aggravated by a slow person. And so, again, in my group classes, I kind of, kind of put it to where everybody gets a workout. Everybody can go through some movement. But in the private class is where you're going to get that one-on-one. -on -one, and I'm going to develop you to your ability and not to somebody else's ability. Nobody can learn how to play piano in a group. Right. 
right? Nobody goes to, to group class to learn how to play piano. You know, so that's the other thing to think about. I mean, a lot, a lot of places do do the group classes, just, and some of them do private classes when the, the student gets higher in rank. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, like I, I say to students all the time, I mean, do your research. If you know you were going to go have open heart surgery, you're just not going to pick the first person you see in the yellow pages. <laughs> Let's see, doctor who what? Yeah, I'm going to have him take my heart out. <laughs> you know, you, you research it. Same thing with a martial arts school. Research that. Go in there and talk to the instructor. See what he's going to do for you. Nice. I love that. That's a great answer. All right. Who are some names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Huh. You should have asked me that 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know. You've trained with some uh, great people. You've met some great people. I mean, it's, you know. I, I really have. I mean, I was, I was fortunate, you know, because I went to these people. I, 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 I seek them out. I mean, I was fortunate to train with Al Tracy, Ed Parker, William Chow. Um, I trained with Sornaka and Fujiwara. I met Bruce Lee, never had an opportunity to train with him. Um, I don't know. I was 12 years old when I met him. I was bigger than him when I was 12. Uh, Joe Lewis. I mean, out of, out of everybody, Joe Lewis was serious. And I mean, Joe Lewis, the kickboxer Mm -hmm. was a serious badass. Yeah. He used to come to our school in Miami all the time. Him and Tom Dunn were like great friends. Nice. And he would come in there and I have an old reel to reel video machine. They look like a tape recorder machine, but they're video. Yep. And again, I have all these tapes on there, and I have Joe Lewis in there in the dojo at 8th Street doing a side side kick. Wow. And I hear two smacks, like somebody's hitting their chest. Bam, bam. And I'm going, let's play that again. And you see Joe Lewis hop across the room, and you hear bam, bam. <laughs> but you only see the side kick. Wow. And so Tom Dunn played real slow. Joe Lewis threw a back fist. And then a sidekick, but you never, ever saw that back fist. That's awesome. Incredible. And Joe Lewis would come down to the school, I don't know, at least every other month, hang out and train with us and spar with us and work out. I mean, incredible. Bill Wallace, another one. Yep. Where you see me do my kicks and all these fancy hook kicks. And, you know, here I am, 6'4", being able to do a roundhouse kick to somebody's head like it's nothing. That's all Wallace. Nice. I, mean, I trained with Wallace. You know, I started training with him in like 78, you know, and, and going and doing all his stretch and all his kicks and how to close the distance and, and do that. Because, I mean, to watch Wallace and his kicks, <laughs> I mean, that, that to me, again, incredible. And I trained with a lot of people that I, you know, really don't want to talk about because they weren't as good as they said they were. Right. I had an opportunity to train with, with Moses Powell. And uh, we did everything with an extremist stick. I didn't even know Moses Powell was a jiu-jitsu guy. Oh, wow. Because when I trained with him, we were doing all extremist sticks. That's cool. So we would we would train with the extremist stick and, and the, what do you call the hand Joe or Ambo. Yep. And uh, fascinating. So all those I mentioned will be on my mountain. That's a beautiful Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Some great answers there. So Yeah. Nice. All right. So in, in 50 years of martial arts, is there a philosophy you've learned, one philosophy that raises to the top of your list that you keep coming back to is super important to you? You know, you know to tell you honest, Chief, no, not really. Okay. I mean, not not at all. I don't even think of something. Well, that's okay. Hey, not everyone has an answer for that. Maybe our next interview, I'll give you time to think about it. <laughs> well, there we go. There we go. <laughs> All right, I got, a, I got a few fun questions to wrap it up. This this one, you you can't have obviously mention yours, but do you have a favorite martial arts book? 
my favorite martial arts book. Uh, you know, I would have to say it would be uh, What is Karate? Nice. By Master Yami. Only, only because I think that was the first book. And I got that book from the guy that started teaching me in his garage. Mm-hmm. And with Master Yami. And I was fortunate enough to meet Master Yami in Japan. He had me as a special guest wow. at his tournament that was done in May. And, um, you know, again, I, I think that would be the one. I mean, of course, I got a lot of books. You know, right. I always pull out Potosi's book to kind of cross-reference it. I really wish Mr. Chow would have wrote a book, but he yeah, never did. Definitely. Of course, I always pull out Mr. Parker's books and mm-hmm. go through them and cross-reference them. Yep. You know, so uh, I would have to say that one only because it was it was given to me as a young kid by this older guy, Joe, and it meant a lot to me for him to, you know, later on I find out he was just going to throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Because he was done with karate, he wanted to be a soccer coach, no figure. But anyhow, it meant a lot to me because, you know, he he gave it to me and said, here. And and then I got to meet the guy that was in the book. And I think that that would be the one for for sure. Great answer. All right. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? Um, It'd have to be Kung Fu. (laughs) That seems to be about 30% of my guests picked that one, I think. So. Yeah, well, because there's not a whole lot. I mean, there's not a whole lot that realistically that you could go to. And again, you know, I'm sure Warren Brothers, you know, they were kicking their ass when they when they turned down Bruce Lee for the part. Mm-hmm. Go figure, right? Yep. Exactly. So it have to be that because you know, really, you know, in my day, you know, it was it was that show and it was cool and. I try to watch all the all the TV shows. Yep. Uh, you know, you got the Karate Kid, and now they made that new Cobra Kai spinoff of uh, what the what's it called now? It's called uh, Co- Cobra Kai. Yeah. Yes. And uh, it's really again, good. <laughs> well, as I'm watching it, I want to go into those schools and just beat the crap out of those instructors. Yeah. Which, Obviously, it's not uh, realistic, but it's when you have the nostalgia of the original movie, it's, it's a good show. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I liked I liked season one. I liked season two. Yep. Season three, I I kind of gave up on it because it it just was going too far to me in a, in a negative direction. Okay. And I, you know, and again, me actually being, a, you know, it's like I made a movie. It was called uh, I was in a movie called uh, Mortal Mortal Contact. Contact. Yep. And uh, I'm a real martial artist. Mm-hmm. And the 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 star of the show was this goofball, I shouldn't say that, this goofball from Europe. And he wasn't a martial artist, but he was, you know, kind of like the the good-looking guy in his country. Yep. But, you know, he said, Blackwell Magazine came there, and he said a lot of goofy things. <laughs> and I, I said something to him. I said, you know, this is, this is fine for you to make up stories, and you don't know what you're talking about. I said, but this has been my whole life. I mean, don't just make up crap because you just want to sound good for the magazine. Right. And, you know, this, this is this is what I do for real. And then, of course, we had a little bit of conflict there. And then he was scared to work with me because I did get a little upset and I did, I did hit him for real. Oh, nice. And then he wanted to quit and cry. <laughs> and so um, then later we, we cleared it up and he was he was quite convinced that he overstepped his boundary the night before. Okay. Nice. I'll have to, I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that one. I'll have to go back and watch that. So I know I've heard of it. I just yeah, my get... kids saw it and that. They called me up. They saw it in Spanish. <laughs> nice. Okay. <laughs> but I, I pulled a Joe Lewis. I pulled a Joe Lewis on that one. Yeah. 
Because you know, I was I was on the set with Joe Lewis when they did Jaguar Live. Okay. And uh, I had a great time because I was eating the buffet was there. And I mean, it was kind of great. And so Tom Dunn was there with me. And I think there was one other guy that was with us at the time. I can't remember who, but I know it was me and Tom Dunn. And then, of course, the producer says to, to Joe, okay, we want you to come out this door here and do this, this, and this. And Joe goes, no. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is come from here and do this, this, and that. And they're going, no, we got the cameras. And they argued for like 40 minutes wow. to do this. You know, these guys have all these cameras in that. And so I'm standing over the buffet getting something to eat in that. And the girl with the clipboard, she's standing near me. And then the producer comes walking up and goes, who the hell is this guy? And she goes, oh, that's, that's Joe Lewis. He's, a, he's an awesome karate guy now. He goes, I don't give a shit who he is. This is the last time I'm working with this guy. <laughs> so they walked away, and I, I go to Tom Dunn and go, come on, come over here and get as much buffet food as you can, because <laughs> I got a feeling we're getting thrown out of here today. <laughs> That's but great. nevertheless, they did the movie. I ate like a king. Nice. And then uh, that was it. Joe Lewis kind of cut his own throat. But so when I did when I did my movie, when I do my movie, that I kept making the same joke because there's one part in the movie where the guy comes running across and he jumps to do a flying kick and I catch him in the air and I spin around and throw him in the pool. Nice. And they had to do this take over. And then there was a plane that flew by that we had to stop. And I said to the guy, I said, why don't you put another camera here so we can get the shot? He goes, yeah, that'd be smart. You'll see the camera in the other camera. I said, hey, don't give me no lip. I'll throw you in the river. <laughs> and... um but I, I I did that because, you know, you had to go with what the producers wanted because that's the way the camera was. Right. But you can watch me in the movie. I'm, when I, I go to catch the guy, my arms are basically white. When I throw him in the water, my arms are sunburned. Because <laughs> nice. it took us about took us about four and a half hours to film it. That's funny. I will have to watch that this weekend. So <laughs> that'll be good. Yeah. Well, somebody has it in Spanish. I, my kids called me and said, yeah, we saw you. In Spanish. That's awesome. All right. How about a, no, obviously can't pick yours, but favorite martial arts movie? My favorite martial arts movie. Mm -hmm. mm. You know, it, it would still have to be Enter the Dragon. Nice. Solid answer. Okay. You know, it, it, it would still have to be that. I'm trying to think, but yeah, I think, I think Enter the Dragon had always been, you know, that, that, that has always been my, my favorite, my favorite movie. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the question for you, the, the, I didn't even know Jackie. I didn't even know Jackie Chan was in the movie. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That was kind of weird. Yep. Yep. He was in that. Yeah. That's crazy. So in that, what the early nineties movie shoot fighter. Now, did they have to get permission to use that name? Did, were you connected to that? In no, any way? nobody, no, no, nobody, nobody even said anything to me about it. I mean, they just, they made a movie and then somebody said they got a movie out and I didn't even, I didn't know about it until it was out. Okay. And again, shoot fighter is 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 different because the the name shoot fighting is right. registered. Right. True. And that according to yeah, according to my because I had to get like a real lawyer. Yeah. And um, if somebody is using shoot fighting but it's describing an outboard motor, there's nothing I could do about it. Okay. But what has to what it has to happen is they got to use the word, and it has to confuse people that are doing shoot fighting with what I'm doing. Interesting. Okay. All right. Final question. Now, this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, but just overall, do you have a favorite movie fight scene? I, you know, I don't know. I, I yeah, I like the fight scenes that they did in um, uh, Rush Hour. Oh yeah. Oh, De Jackie Chan. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Jackie Chan and even uh, uh, Chris Tucker. Yep. I mean, I don't know if he was actually doing some of those moves or that, but 
I think and he, again, being funny and everything. But yeah, I think he trained with Jackie. A li- I mean, a little bit. So I think he, he did some of the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm sure that 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 they did to to be able to 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 make the movie. But but some of those scenes were really incredible. But I can't I can't think of um, I can't think of anything. I would, I'd have to go with Rush Hour with with uh, you know the moves Jackie Chan was doing because again, some of those things were incredible. And then of course to see the bloopers at the end of it. <laughs> those are the fake best even, parts. Even, <laughs> yep. Yeah. We're even great. No, I still, yeah, re- let's go rush hour. That's yeah, nice. go with. I still remember the first time I ever saw Jackie Chan. It was a cannonball run. Was it cannonball run or cannonball run two? He oh. was in one of those movies when he played the race car driver. <laughs> I don't think, he's, right. I don't think he spoke any English in the movie at all, but yeah, <laughs> it's like, that's Jackie Chan. Yeah. Oh, he gosh. had no words for that. I think yeah. that was his first thing that he did yeah, in the U S. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. Cool. And then, uh, of course, um, in Enter the Dragon, he was just an extra. Yep. And then, um, and then, of course, you know, some of the Chuck Norris movies were great. Oh, yeah. We used to go to Redondo Beach in the early days at uh, Chuck Norris' school. Tom Dunn used to take us after there. I don't know if they were good friends or not, but mm-hmm. I remember going out there to uh, uh, train at Chuck Norris' school. Nice. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he had some, he had some pretty good scenes. Uh, fight scenes in some of his movies. I never really watched Texas Ranger. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you just I I don't watch much. You know, I I played pro football and I don't even watch football. Okay. So uh, yeah, I'm not. You know, if I'm not playing, I don't want to watch somebody else. It's like I say to people all the time: nobody comes to watch me work. <laughs> there you Why go. Why you think I'm going to come watch them work? <laughs> I think one of my favorite Chuck Norris fight scenes. I love. It's more, it's more of a f- comedy, but I love the fight scene in the movie Sidekicks between Chuck Norris and Joe Piscopo. That final fight scene. I don't know if you saw that movie or not, but oh it, yeah, hilarious! Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Such a good that fight was, scene. That was, that was good. <laughs> I think that was you're one. Right. one I think that was one of his first comedies that he did, probably. And then after that, he started. He did like four or five comedies in a row. I think because they're like, oh yeah, he's actually funny. <laughs> But yeah, him and him and Joe Piscopo together was that was just classic. I I still go back and watch that one like once a year. So cool. Well, Bart, I I want to thank you so. This has been so much fun. Seriously, I mean, I love your stories. You have such an amazing life, amazing career. I will put links for your for your school and anything else you want me to put links for when the show comes out in a few weeks. And I just I truly appreciate your time, and I've I've enjoyed this so much. Me too. Thanks for calling me. And I I will be in touch when the episode's ready. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.